I wanted to talk tonight about motivation in our practice. And the first thing I want to say about it, sometimes when um, you hear that somebody's going to talk about motivation, you wonder, gee, is something wrong with mine? Are they telling me this because uh, there's a problem here? And I really want to say up front, this is not a remedial talk. So I'm really, I'm very touched every day by the people that I meet and the amount, extraordinary amount of motivation that everyone is bringing to the practice that I've been talking to. So it's not in any way to try and fix anything that anyone is doing, but rather just to share some reflections from my own practice and my own observations that I just hope might uh, speak to you or touch some points that we share together. So I'd especially like to dedicate this talk to those of you in the room who were the best yogi today because I know you all had really fine motivation. In the interview groups today, some of us looked into the question, uh, put in one way, of what we're doing here. I know in my group I asked the people that I was meeting with to look and see what your deepest intention was in undertaking the retreat. Being here for three weeks is a long time. It's um, essentially infinite once you get into it. So... um, You'll feel that it's a long time. And uh, there were a lot of really beautiful answers to that question. You could tell that everyone in the group had done uh, quite a bit of practice before. And there were answers like uh, healing, healing of the body or healing of the heart, opening of the heart, Uh, wanting to look into the arising of the sense of self. Where does this mysterious thing called I come from? A greater ability to rest in our true nature, trusting that at the center we're all pure in the sense of wisdom and compassion, and being able to rest more in that. Becoming less reactive from our conditioned or habitual reactions. Learning to listen more deeply within ourselves, and being able to connect again and again with a deep sense of peacefulness and calm. These are all really beautiful intentions, and they're intentions that really can sustain you over a long period of retreat. So we ask this question for two reasons. One, it helps us to know what you're here for, because then we understand better your process and can better uh, guide where you might want to go. But also because, you know, there's this age-old truth that what somebody else tells us we don't remember very well, but what we tell somebody else we remember really well. So the hope being that by speaking your intentions aloud, you would remember them. And when the time comes in the retreat, when you start to wonder, what on earth am I doing here? This sentence might come back. Some of these ideas might come back to you and help you find your way, find your direction. I love the way that Sylvia put it last night. If I remembered it correctly, I just want to repeat it because it's so uh, good and complete. What we're doing here is discovering and cultivating our natural capacity for wise discernment and compassionate response. Is that pretty close? Pretty close. (laughs) Okay. I really like this statement because it actually, when you look at it closely, it includes the whole of the Eightfold Path. There's the compassionate response, which is the area of conduct. 
There is the uh, cultivation of a natural capacity, which is the whole area of mental training or meditation. And there's the development of wise discernment, which is the area of wisdom. So conduct, meditation, and wisdom, this really is the Eightfold Path all in one sentence. It's a good little formula to remember. It says a lot. But this quality of intention is itself a very root quality. You know, we touched on it last week, um, for those of you who were here last week, when we talked about karma and how the whole unfolding of our journey, the spiritual journey, takes place according to the laws of cause and effect. And that cause and effect uh, concatenation or unfolding begins from intention. Intention is the seed that forms the heart of our actions. In Tibetan, they say it this way. They say everything rests on the tip of motivation. If our motivation is pure and is wholesome, our whole unfolding will be beautiful and pure. If our motivation and intention are in the direction of liberation and spiritual deepening, then that's the way our life will unfold. There's a tremendous power when we incline the mind in a spiritual direction. This force of intention is uh, tremendous in a very mysterious kind of way. You know, I, I can't even begin to understand all the workings of it. But I know that the mind contains everything within it, contains all potentials. And when we urge it and feed it and nourish it in a given direction, it has the elasticity, it has the pliability, and it definitely has the talent to grow that way. So all the intentions that were mentioned earlier in my group will all help unfold your being in a very beautiful way, in a way that leads to a lot of blessings. You know, this term attachment is kind of a dirty word in Buddhist thought, but the Buddha himself didn't always view it that way. He was giving instructions to uh, the monks one day, and he uttered this verse, Let not a person revive the past, or on the future build their hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let them see each presently arisen state. Let them know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. One who dwells thus, ardently, by day, by night, it is he or she who has one fortunate attachment. If we're a little attached to our intentions, that's okay. That's a fortunate kind of attachment. This abiding in the present and being able to see each presently arisen state dwelling ardently is a fortunate attachment. So they all lead in the direction of the beautiful. They all lead in the direction of happiness. And yet each intention has its own flavoring. It has its own uh, character or personality. The intention of healing, for example, 
has a different flavor in our life, in our heart, than the intention of seeing the nature of the self, the personal I, the small self that arises. has a little different flavor than the interest just in abiding in peacefulness. Because of these different flavors, different people as you practice here will have different outer forms. You know, I think of it a little bit like uh, a recipe book. If you want to bake a souffle, you have to be kind of delicate with it. You know, you can't go stomping around the kitchen and you don't crank up the heat to the highest level and you may have to turn it up for a while and back down to get the browning just right on top. In healing also, there's a kind of delicate balance of the heat or the intensity of practice that's needed. So someone who is here primarily to do healing of body or of heart might have an outward form where the temperature isn't so high, the intensity of their retreat is not as high. Someone who is here to really look into the structure of the self, maybe that's more like baking a pizza. You know, you can't do much to hurt a pizza. And so you can kind of crank the temperature up and really go for the sittings late at night and early in the morning and be really meticulous with your noting and slow down and be very precise, very present, put in maximum effort. And that's the way you'll see how the self is put together. So as you, you know, start to get a sense of each other over these days, please have an understanding that different people are practicing with different intentions. They're all really wonderful. And as you practice with different intentions, the outer form might look a little different. So please have respect. If you're one of the more speeded up ones who's baking on a lower heat, you know, try not to knock over the people who are going at the, what we call a snail's pace, Vipassana, in the lunch line, in the walking room. Just be sensitive to those who are really slowed down. If you're really slowed down, also try to be uh, spacious and loving toward people who are going a little faster. We're all doing just the work that we need to do. An interesting thing about motivation is that it itself is a factor of the path. I'll talk later how it fits in, how the Buddha talked about it, but it itself is a factor of our awakening. And as such, it develops as our practice develops. The motivation isn't a static thing that we take up one motivation in the beginning of practice and it's always there just the same until the end. It's a living thing. It's a thing that grows when it's supported by understanding, when it's supported by loving kindness, when it's supported by balance of mind. Particularly when we come into retreat, and those of you who are starting a retreat now, the motivation will feel very different today than it might a few days later. I know when I start a retreat, I usually get preoccupied in the first couple of days with one goal. I just want to make myself more comfortable. Peace, freedom, liberation, healing, forget it. I just want to sit for an hour without my back aching. I just want to find out when I can take my shower and uh, not have to scramble in the bathroom. I want to know that I'll be able to eat the food that I'll be able to sleep at night. So I find in the early days of the retreat, my mind is turning around a lot of kind of little issues. So if you've seen the mind turning that way today, that's fine, that's normal, that's just part of the settling in process. And with it, there may be a little bit of struggle with 
uh, not being at home in the body yet because it's kind of achy, or not being at home with the mind because you've told it to stay on the breath, but it's really all over the place, past and future. You may find yourself wishing you were somewhere else altogether. This kind of struggle is really natural in the early days. It's just an indication of the settling in. And then somehow after a couple of days, there's something just seems to click, usually for me and I know a lot of people, and suddenly a factor of acceptance comes in, a deep factor of acceptance. And the mind that was struggling with the body pain can now be still in the middle of it. The mind that was struggling with wandering and being away from the breath can now accept it in kind of a non-judging way. It's okay that the mind goes off. That's what minds do. So then the motivation becomes a little more pure. Instead of trying to make ourselves comfortable, we realize, oh, I'm comfortable enough. And the, the motivation becomes, ah, I don't need to change my experience now. What can I learn from it? This is a really wonderful shift because we become open to our experience, to our life in a lot deeper way, a lot more authentic way. We don't need it to be a certain way. Rather, we can just be a student and we can say, how, how is life and what can I learn from it just the way it is? When our motivation is strong, everything in the practice seems workable. You know, it's such a key influence. When we're interested, when we're excited, when we're enthusiastic, when we're passionate, when we're dwelling ardent, as the Buddha said, everything else seems workable. The ups and downs of the heart, the aches and pains of the body, the restless mind, it's all okay. But then from time to time, the motivation seems to go somewhere south. And we really wonder, you know, what am I doing here? So I want in the talk to look a little bit at the cycles of motivation in practice and also talk about some enduring kinds of motivation for us. I was on a self-retreat a few years ago. I just decided that I wanted to spend some time not in a group and not having an external schedule. And some friends uh, have a cabin in upstate New York that they offered. So I went to stay there for two months. Actually, it was the months of October and November. It's out uh, on about 500 acres of farmland. And from the cabin, I couldn't see another house. It was really quite alone, quite secluded in a beautiful natural setting. My friends lived a few miles away, and once a week one of them would come over and ask me what food I needed. And then she'd go out shopping for me and bring me the groceries. And then, you know, I might not see her again for a week. So I spent those two months uh, really very much on my own. Well, I was a California kind of guy. And I thought um, October, November, pretty good weather. You know, snow usually doesn't fall until about Thanksgiving. So I just showed up in my Birkenstocks and my sneakers. Big mistake. So this year in upstate New York, the snow started to fall about the 1st of November. And all of November was really snowy. So from about the 1st of November till the 15th, every day it was snowing, or it was raining, or it was cloudy, and I didn't see the sun. Because I only had sneakers and uh, Birkenstocks, 
it was getting really difficult to do my walking practice outside because my feet were really getting cold and wet and my shoes were getting soaked. So I was getting discouraged about that. And what I did finally was take some plastic produce bags that my friend had bought groceries in and I tied a plastic produce bag around each foot. So that was my makeshift boots. Then with my plastic produce bags, I could go do my walking meditation out in the snow. You know, I'd clear a walking path and I'd go walking in the snow and then I was fine. And, you know, the produce bags would last about a day and they'd rip through and I'd have to put new ones on. And the days went by and the sun didn't come out and the snow kept falling, the wind kept blowing, and I was all alone on this mountaintop and I started to really get discouraged. I just started to feel, what am I doing here? You've probably heard that phrase, you know, once or twice in retreat yourself. And I thought I should really go back to California. You know, it'd be much better. I know there'll be some sunshine still in the Bay Area. It'll be a little warmer. I'll at least be able to walk outside. But unfortunately, I'd sublet my house. So I really had nowhere to come home to. And then one day I came down from a sitting and I looked out the window and it was snowing again. And I just felt, I just want to get out of here. I just didn't want to stay. And of course, we have a name for this in our practice. We call it doubt. When you don't feel like being here, we recognize it as a hindrance and it's called doubt. So I got sort of curious. I thought, well, I teach about this. I ought to know something about it. So I started looking at it. And what I saw is that that urge to get away was coming up right after I had a really uneasy feeling that weather and the grayness and the isolation, the solitude, were coming out in me in some kind of despair. It was like touching some part of myself that I really wasn't comfortable with. I wasn't used to feeling that uh, despair, loneliness. I didn't like it. And the doubt is really because, it's not because I didn't like the weather or because it was cold outside. It was because I didn't like this feeling in my heart. Then when I saw that, I could say, oh, so I just need to open to that despair. And when I could accommodate it, then it was okay again. So what I saw, it was a really good lesson. My motivation had gone away because I was experiencing something I didn't like. It was really, really simple. This often happens when motivation drops. Do you notice your motivation doesn't usually go away after your best sitting of the retreat? You know, you come in and you have 45 minutes where you're really settled and really with the breath. And after that, you start thinking, oh, maybe I'll sign up for two months next year. Or maybe I'll go uh, sit the three-month course in Barry." But when doubt comes in is when there's been something difficult. So this is a really good pointer. When the motivation drops, take a look and see what was it that was difficult? What in your experience did you have trouble opening to? What did you have trouble accepting in yourself? Sometimes we get discouraged in practice because we want something special. There was one retreat I was on where I really, I had heard about this particular insight into impermanence and I really wanted it. You know, everybody was talking about it, books were talking about it, teachers were talking about it. I thought I should have it. And I tied myself up into knots looking for this one particular experience 
about impermanence. And when it didn't come, I got very frustrated, I got very judgmental, and I felt basically like quitting. Didn't get it, that whole retreat. You know, a few years later, I got it. Not such a big deal. (laughs) Hardly worth worrying about. But sometimes the discouragement comes because we're expecting something special. So look at that too. Is there a special result? Sometimes starting a new retreat, we want to repeat a really favorite experience from our last retreat. But the funny thing is, you know, that favorite experience often happened uh, eight days in or ten days in or longer. But we want it back the first day. Oh, that should be happening by now. So look and see if there's an expectation about some particular experience. Sometime in retreats, you know, we want some special experience because it validates us. It validates us as a good meditator. It validates our experience. And we can get disappointed if it's not happening. Sometimes in practice we hit these periods that are a little bit like a plateau where things are going along smoothly, but it's not very dramatic, and we think, oh, nothing's happening now. Actually, those plateau periods, there's often a lot going on under the surface, a lot of integration, or a lot of gathering the energies, preparing for another deepening, but it may seem like nothing special's happening. At times like that, uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, used to say that he would just tell himself, look, your job is just to sit and walk. The Dharma takes care of all the rest. So we can remind ourselves of that. All we have to do is sit, walk, and be present. Everything else is up to the Dharma, not our responsibility. Sometimes in uh, times of low motivation, I really take a lot of inspiration from other meditators. I was sitting in the fall in Massachusetts for six weeks, and there was a woman who was sitting uh, with me, sitting at the same time, uh, named Ann Creamer. And she's someone that I've known over the uh, last several years, who I've just come to have a really deep uh, affection and appreciation for. Ann is uh, 77 years old. I know she wouldn't mind my sharing that, because she tells everybody who will listen. And she lives in Santa Fe with her sister, Rita, who is 81. Anne and Rita used to be Catholic nuns together in Peru. They worked in Peru as sort of social activists for about 13 years, uh, looking after the needs of poor people there. And sometime in their uh, later years, uh, got into Vipassana, and are very, very committed uh, Vipassana practitioners. So Anne was there sitting for six weeks also. So I would go out, I'd be doing my walking practice, and again, the weather was kind of crummy at times. You know New England weather in the fall. And I'd be thinking, this is really a drag, you know, I wish it were sunny or something like that. You may have had some of those thoughts today. And I'd see Anne out there walking. And she isn't in the best of health. She's actually got some nerve damage in her right hip And she can't um, feel her right foot when it touches the ground. So her balance in her walking meditation is really a little iffy. And yet every day, she'd be out there doing her walking meditation, back and forth on a path really close to mine. 
And I would look at her and I think, I'm complaining? Give me a break. And it would just really inspire me to keep going for the rest of that, of that period. There are also some beautiful stories um, that I find really inspiring of the early practitioners of the Dharma. And there's one book in particular I want to mention a couple of stories from. It's called The First Buddhist Women. It's written by Susan Murcott. And she compiled the stories of the early nuns, many of whom were alive at the time of the Buddha, when the order of nuns was just being formed, or had just been formed. So many of them practiced with the Buddha. Many of them practiced with other nuns who had already awakened and got their instructions from them. These uh, accounts of the nuns' practice have been collected in the Pali Canon in a section called the Terigatha, which means uh, verses of the women elders. And the fuller stories about the nuns' lives have come down in a set of commentaries to the original canon that were compiled uh, some hundreds of years later. So we know not only the poems that these women left, but also something about their lives. And there are some really amazing stories in here. Um, there was a woman uh, named Siha, which means lion. She was the niece of a famous general. She heard the Buddha uh, teach one day and decided that she'd like to ordain as a nun. So uh, the Buddha took her to the other nuns and she did ordain. She ordained as a bhikkhuni. And then she practiced and she practiced, and she practiced. You know how in a lot of these old Buddha stories, you hear that somebody heard the teachings from the Buddha and they were immediately awakened? You know, that's some of the people. But there were a lot of the people, and maybe this is the remedial class that uh, Sylvia was talking about too, who had to do a lot of practice. And Siha was one of these people. Kind of, I can relate a little better to her. And then after her um, practice, she left this poem. Obsessed by desire, I never got to the origin, but was agitated, my mind beyond control. I dreamed of a great happiness. I was passionate, but I had no peace. Pale and thin, I wandered for seven years, unhappy day and night. Can you imagine that fortitude? Such faith in the teachings and such faith in the practice. Pale and thin, I wandered seven years, unhappy day and night. The story gets worse from there. (laughs) Then I took a rope into the forest and thought, I'd rather hang than go back to that narrow life. You know, the life of renunciation sometimes seems quite narrow. You all are now in a very strongly renunciate lifestyle. You've been given up contact and friends and entertainments and your daily pleasures. You're in a very deep period of renunciation. This life is not always easy and it's not always appealing. Sometimes it seems very narrow. I tied a string noose to the branch of a tree and put it round my neck. Just then, my heart 
was set free. And we may presume, then she untied the noose, (laughs) came back to the community and left us this amazing poem. Sometimes in the depths of discouragement, liberation breaks through when we're least expecting it. Sometimes when we're really pushed to an edge that we didn't know we could tolerate, come some of our greatest openings. Unexpectedly, completely as a surprise. That's one of the stories I like a lot from the early uh, women practitioners, but there's another one that moves me more, who is a nun named Patachara. So I'd like to tell a little about her life story before she encountered the teachings, because I think it's so moving. She was brought up in northern India in a fairly well-to-do family. Her father was a banker. The family was quite stable, so the mother was at home, and she also had a brother. So the family of four, and she was well looked after. And as she came into puberty, her family arranged a marriage for her with a suitable young man uh, in the same village. So it would be a match of equals, and she could have expected a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle out of the arranged marriage. However, Patachara, for better or for worse, had fallen in love. The person that she was in love with was a servant in the village, so not somebody who in that rigid caste system of that day was considered her her match or her equal for marriage and child raising. So her parents forbade her to be with her lover, the servant, and insisted that she carry out the arranged marriage with the other young man. Patachara wouldn't do it, and she ran away from home. She ran off with her lover, and they settled in another part of India and made their living in simple trades, but got by, and she became pregnant. And she felt that having this child far away from her family was a little bit dangerous, so she said to her husband, I know I haven't spoken to my family for a long time now, but I want to go back and have my child in my parents' home because I feel I'll be well looked after and I can be healthy there. So her husband said, okay, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, okay, I'll go with you. But he didn't do anything about it. He just kept procrastinating. And finally she saw he wasn't going to do anything, so she took off by herself and went back to her parents' home. And he realized that she'd gone, sort of made haste to catch up with her, and did, They got back to her parents' home. She had the child safely, reconciled with her parents, and then came back to where she and her husband had been living with her newborn baby. Raised the child, a few years passed, and she became pregnant again. And again she said to her husband, I'd like to go back to my parents' home to have our second child. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll go back to the parents' home. Uh, Just a a few days, I'll be ready. And he kept procrastinating. So again, she took off uh, by herself without him and took the, uh, the eldest child. They were on the way back to the parents' home and a great storm broke out. Again, the husband realized that they had left and he made haste to catch up with them and he did, but just as the storm was breaking out. So great rains were falling, the wind was blowing, it was cold, and the husband set off uh, with a machete 
to chop down some uh, trees and branches and leaves to make a shelter for them for the night. And while he was in the forest cutting down uh, the materials for the shelter, he was bitten by a poisonous snake and he died on the spot. The Padachara, when he hadn't come back, went looking for him and found him dead in the forest where he'd been bitten by the snake. And just at that time, she began to give birth to her second child. In the middle of this intense storm, as the rain is falling and the winds are howling, and it's getting dark, night's falling. So she actually gave birth to the child on the spot, alone. And it said that all night long, she tried to cover the body of her two children with her own body, not having shelter. She let the rains fall on her and tried to keep her children dry. So they survived the night, and in the morning, she picked up the newborn baby and led the older child who could walk and made her way, grief-stricken, to her parents' home. And as they were following along the path, they came to a river that was mightily swollen by all the rains that had been falling all night long. It was too much for the youngest child to cross alone. So Patachara carried her baby across the river and set the baby down on the other side and was walking back to uh, get her oldest child to lead the oldest child across. And as she was recrossing the river to get her oldest child, a hawk swooped down out of the sky, picked up the newborn baby, and carried it away. And the mother screamed at the hawk to let go, but it didn't, so the newborn was carried off. But the older child thought that the screams were for it to come, and he plunged into the river and was swept away by the flood. So within 12 hours, Patachara had lost her husband and both children. Totally devastated. She continued on her own to her parents' village. When she got there, she saw a villager on the outskirts of the village, and they recognized each each other, and she said, please tell me the news of my family. And he said, ask me anything but that. So she said, no, you must tell me. He said, I hate to be the one to tell you, but last night in the storm, your parents' home collapsed. Your mother and father and your brother were all killed. At that, having lost everything in the world, Patachara went mad with grief. It was completely devastating, completely overwhelming, and she went insane. In her state of, of grief and shock and insanity, she couldn't care for herself. And it said that she wandered around that part of India and her clothing was just falling off. Uh, wearing through and falling off. And a lot of the time she was wandering around naked. And then sometimes people would give her uh, some clothes to wear, some thrown off rags, and those would wear through. This is where her name comes from. Patachara actually means cloak wearer. And when she'd come near a village, people would drive her away because they'd say, here comes the mad woman. Drive her away. Finally, in one of her wanderings, she ran into the Buddha. She was directed to the Buddha. 
And she was in her state of uh, non, not comprehending, not understanding um, what was going on. And she also wasn't wearing any clothes at that point. She came up to the Buddha and the Buddha said to her, Sister, please recover your mind. And with that simple statement, it brought her out of her insanity and she recovered her mind. And she saw that she was standing there naked in the midst of a group of people. Someone offered her a robe and she covered herself up. And then she had this interchange with the Buddha. Help me, she said to the Buddha, And she told him her terrible story. He replied, Patachara, don't think you have come to someone who can help you. What an incredible statement. Don't think you have come to someone who can help you. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in the four oceans. This made her grief less heavy. He went on to say that when she herself went to another world, no kin could help her. And that even in this world, no kin can help. And then he told her about the Buddhist path. And when he had finished, she asked to be ordained. The message is that he could not help her because she had to come to the understanding herself. She had to find the motivation and the interest to look, to look deeply and closely into life herself. So Patachara, ordained as a bhikkhuni, was given the teachings, and then she practiced. She was not one who heard and understood right away. She also had to practice. And this is the poem that she left. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, Young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right. I've followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? We can do everything right in our practice. And still, the karmic accumulations, the habitual conditions of mind are so strong that it can take some time to release them, to break through them. I've done everything right. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet one day, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I don't know if you get the sense. To me, those lines have such a sense of just clear seeing. Not a great intrusion of I or mine or owning or confusion. Just bathing the feet and watching the bath water run down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. And then she herself became a great teacher and is said to have uh, brought to awakening a number of other nuns, a number of other bhikkhunis. 
This story really touches me deeply because it's hard to imagine a greater need for healing than Patachara's. It's hard to imagine a heart more wounded than hers. And yet even through this difficult work of healing from madness of the most extreme kind and practicing for years, uh, you know that she felt the residue of that difficult period all through her being, just with the steadiness of attention and that opening of clear seeing, the freedom came, the freedom dawned. This kind of story points to me to uh, some kind of turning points in motivation. I just wanted to mention a few. First is when we first come into the practice and we see the potential for some easing of our suffering, some possibility of greater peace. I still remember how strong my first retreat was for me, touching a depth of peace I had never known before and how sweet it was, how satisfying that peace was. It really gives us faith that the third noble truth is for us. This possibility of the end of suffering is for us. That it's not just people in old stories that find this kind of peace, but it's you and I here, today, now, who can find this peace. And from that faith then comes effort. And actually the Buddha uh, drew this link in a teaching called the Chain of Dependent arising in the transcendental sense that suffering led to faith and faith led to effort. And effort basically led to happiness and release. So we undertake the practice and we find that we can discover more peace, we can discover more happiness. And a greater degree of contentment comes in. But this itself can be a turning point in motivation Because if originally we practiced in order to heal, in order to overcome (coughs) suffering, when the contentment comes, then what are we here for? What are we here for if the suffering isn't weighing so much? I was in a a three-month retreat one time, and I had an insight that I thought was kind of special. And it brought me a lot of uh, a really kind of amazing sense of freedom. And so I went to tell my teachers about it, and I thought they should think it was kind of special too. And they didn't seem to think it was very special at all. They didn't seem to make a big deal about it. And um, I'd actually been sitting in my room for a couple of days after I had this insight, just reflecting on what a special insight this was. (laughs) And then they said, nah, nah, no big deal. One of my teachers actually said to me, uh, she'll remain nameless. I said, uh, you're not very deep. <laughs> I said, I can tell by the way you walk in the room, you're not very deep. So-and-so, and then they named a good friend of mine who was also sitting, so-and-so is much deeper than you are. <laughs> we, we promise not to say that to any of you. And um, I got a little discouraged. Because <laughs> I still thought it was a pretty cool insight. <laughs> And far from being appreciated, you know, I felt like it was not um, appreciated at all. So I became very discouraged at this point. And for the rest of the retreat, I felt like I was just kind of uh, wandering and struggling to keep up with the schedule. And it was actually many years later 
before I met a teacher who could put that insight into some kind of perspective for me so that they actually uh, came to feel that it was as special as I had come to feel it was. So, if you don't get the answer you want from one of us, try another. That's why you have two teachers for your interviews. So it took me, it actually took my motivation a while to recover from that. Because two things had happened. One is in touching this place of greater freedom, some of the reason I had for practicing went away. You know, I'd actually reached one of the things I was looking for, was understanding freedom in a really deep way. And then the other thing that was discouraging was that it wasn't validated. So I was left with this not knowing or this uh, level of confusion. So sometimes when you reach that kind of next rung of contentment, don't be surprised if the motivation sort of falls off for a while. Don't beat yourself up or think you're doing something wrong. I think it's really natural. And I think it's a sign that maybe it's time to enjoy the fruits of your practice for a while. Enjoy the happiness and the spaciousness and the peacefulness that you've opened to. Really bask. Take some time to bask in the blessings that the practice has opened for you. And then after a while of basking, after the confusion died down, I started to see, oh, you know what? There's a lot more contentment now. There's a lot more happiness and there's a lot more peacefulness and there's still suffering. It didn't finish the job. So over time, even though that suffering was more subtle, I was more sensitive. And so it, it, it felt like it was chafing also the new, more subtle kinds of unhappiness. And then that motivated me to go back and practice more. Someone in the interview group today in talking about intention said something that really excited me. She said in the last retreat that she had been at, had some real opening in the course of the retreat and went to her teacher and said, I want to be free. Stated it really strongly for herself and out loud, for her teacher, I want to be free. This can be another really beautiful turning point in motivation. When we realize that it's not really enough just to come out of some of our suffering, but we really want to find the way out of suffering altogether. And not to stop until we find that limitless freedom that the Buddha talked about over and over again. This is a beautiful motivation because it's a very long, enduring one. It's one that can be with you for the rest of your life, the rest of your practice. There's another shift in motivation that happens. You know, we talk a lot about this factor of selflessness or anatta, coming to see that there's no separate self, no abiding center within this mind-body process. At first, it sounds kind of intellectual doesn't sound like it really means very much. But as we start to connect with it, it affects everything in our life and in our practice. And one of the things that it starts to do is to take away the sense that I am different than you. If there's no abiding center here that's unique, and there's no abiding center there that's unique, then what are we both? You and I are both this vast awareness that holds the body sensations and all the qualities of the human heart and all our thoughts 
as they go by and knows them all in a very deep way. I was on a retreat actually where we were practicing this reflection about the liberation of all beings everywhere. And I came to see that that was really the logical outcome of seeing through the separate self. So my interest in practice made this little shift from just wanting to liberate the nature here, the Buddha nature here, to wanting to liberate the Buddha nature wherever it was being obscured. So as we really sense that there's no separation between me and you, between each other, our sense of practice can become much, much wider. In the tradition, this is talked about as the broadening uh, out of the great highway of practice, sometimes called the great vehicle of practice. And it becomes great because our scope of practice becomes limitless. Wherever there's obscuration to this Buddha nature, that's where the opportunity for practice and for liberation is. As we take this as an actual interest of ours, we can begin to practice with it in a practice that's called bodhicitta. Bodhi means enlightened. Citta means mind or heart. So literally this might mean enlightened heart, enlightened mind. But the way that I actually like to read it is the awakening heart. It's the motivation of the awakening heart that sees through all distinctions and sees through all separation to bring liberation everywhere for all beings. If this touches you, if this speaks to you, even a little bit, you can start to bring this into your daily practice. The Dalai Lama has a very simple formulation of this wish for bodhicitta, this aspiration, in two lines. He says, by the force of generosity and other virtues, may I achieve awakening to benefit all sentient beings. By the force of generosity and other virtues. This is actually a code phrase for the paramis. It's considered that the paramis are the wholesome qualities within our heart that have the power to liberate the mind. Generosity is the first of the paramis. Other qualities are compassionate conduct, loving kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, renunciation, determination, wisdom. So by the force of all these beautiful qualities, by developing them over our practice, may I achieve awakening to benefit all sentient beings. Because if we can awaken ourselves and come to that place of steadiness and unbounded compassion and unshakable fearlessness, that's really how we can best help others. So for myself, when I sit, when I sit down, I do the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then I just recite this short uh, verse on bodhicitta, on the awakening heart, which sets my intention for the rest of the sitting. And I've been practicing that way for a number of years now. And I find what it does is that it always keeps my practice linking me 
to the rest of the world so that my practice doesn't become kind of self-enclosing and limiting. You know, in making a statement like, I want to be free, it's a very brave thing to do. Often I feel in the West today, in our practice, we've gotten a little afraid of stating clearly, this is what I want from my practice. This is my goal. This is my aim. This is my destination. And I'm not going to stop until I reach it. I feel we've gotten a little shy about just saying that in a really straightforward way. Probably because enough of us have been burned by taking up a goal and kind of striving after it without a great deal of wisdom. And so we've tended maybe to toss the goal out of our practice. But I feel that may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because a goal can be a really uh, beautiful and inspiring thing in practice. And I think what we need is the way to hold the goal in a mature way. For me, it's a little bit like uh, when I was a child and we were going on a long trip. We used to drive to my grandmother's in North Carolina. And I'd get in the car and my father would be driving the car and we'd be about 20 miles down the road and I'd say, Dad, are we there yet? You know, and every couple hours I'd repeat the question. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? As a child, I couldn't hold that goal in an easy way. The goal itself kind of grated on me because I couldn't wait for it. But for my father, holding the goal wasn't a problem. He knew what lay at the end of the road, and he knew that if he just drove this next mile, sooner or later we'd be there. So as practitioners, can we hold our goal, our deepest intention, our deepest longing, with that kind of maturity? To recognize that it is the end of our path, and yet we don't have to rub it against our present moment experience and downgrade the the moment by comparison. We can simply trust that, as Sylvia said, we don't need to go from here to there. All we need to go is from here to more and more fully here. And we understand the way that mindfulness works is that that coming home is what unfolds us toward that liberation, what unfolds us toward that goal. And holding that goal somewhere in the back of our mind, we know that we don't stop our efforts. We don't let our motivation down until we've reached it. The Buddha used an analogy. He said that one goes forth into the spiritual life and develops gain and honor and renown, becomes known and respected in the community for the depths of one's practice. And then one can become intoxicated and satisfied with that result and says that such a person can become negligent and then falls into suffering and stops short of the goal. He said it's like someone who goes into the forest looking for the heartwood of a tree, wanting to build a solid house, finds a great tree that has heartwood, but instead of taking the heartwood, just pulls off the twigs and the leaves of the tree, goes away and is satisfied. 
said, but there's another kind of practitioner who isn't satisfied with the leaves and the twigs, isn't satisfied with honor and renown, instead develops virtue. But it's possible to stop short at virtue and become negligent and to fall into suffering. And then such a person, the Buddha said, is like one who has gone to the great tree and taken just the outer bark, thinking it was the heartwood. But another person doesn't stop at the outer bark and instead develops the quality of concentration, of unification of mind, which brings not only happiness, but great insight. And if one stops at the virtue of concentration, then the Buddha said it's like stopping at the inner bark of the tree, taking away the inner bark, thinking that it's the heartwood. But other practitioners go beyond the inner bark and develop the quality of knowledge and vision, of seeing things as they actually are. But then a person can stop short there, and then the Buddha said it's like taking the sapwood of that great tree. But the last practitioner is not satisfied with the sapwood, continues and attains what the Buddha called perpetual liberation. The Buddha said, from this it is impossible to fall away. And he concluded by saying that this holy life, friends, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. Let's sit for a minute together. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 8, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.